0: This is Pathways to Resilience with Melissa Santos, the podcast where real people share real stories, helping us build our playbook toward resilience. Thanks for joining us back here on Pathways to Resilience. I um, am looking forward to highlighting Human Trafficking Awareness Month in this episode, uh, January uh Highlights the month for that, and I think there's many people who, um, who don't quite know what human trafficking is. And I have here today with me um, a colleague, Sharon DeNoah, um, who is going to talk us through that. Uh, Sharon. Holds a master's degree in criminology from the London School of Economics and Political Science and is a Juris doctorate from Santa Clara University. She is the director of the South Bay Coalition to End Human Trafficking um, that works here in Santa Clara County of California. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. It's nice to be able to have this platform. Um, we certainly talk about these things. Um, in our work. Um, but I'm happy to be able to have you um, and all of your knowledge and experience and passion as such a fierce advocate for survivors um, here with me today. I appreciate it. So, um, how about we start with talking about what human trafficking is um, and sort of how it shows up in our communities, um, just to set that baseline for people.
1: Sure. So, I mean, human trafficking is not um, a new issue by any means. It's something that we're, really as old as time. Um, really what has been the difference is that now we've, we've formally defined the issue and that happened in the year 2000. Uh, it happened in the international community with the, what's known as the Palermo Protocol. Um, and then we saw it here in the U.S. with the Trafficking Victim Protection Act. But really at, at its very core, human trafficking is when somebody is being exploited. Um, and that could either be for labor, it could be sexual exploitation and they are not able to leave, Mm. um, for some reason. And so when we really think about the formal, um, definition of what human trafficking is, there's that exploitation It's either for labor services or sexual exploitation. Um, it can happen in a variety of ways. So a, a trafficker might be the person who recruits, they might be transporting the person. They might be buying or selling somebody. Um, They might be holding them or harboring them. And then the way that they are able to prevent that individual from leaving the situation of exploitation, and and that's really the really um, pivotal part is through force, fraud, or coercion. Mm -hmm. Um, This is often what, like in our criminal justice system, they really focus on these pieces. Um, Coercion is the most common And not surprisingly, it's also the hardest to identify or see because we know a lot of coercion is psychological. Mm. Um, It really takes into account what um, a lot of service providers focus the most on, which is the trauma. You know, there Mm -hmm. are trauma bonds. Mm -hmm. There are power dynamics that are at play. Um, And so traffickers, you know, use as many tools as they have um, to make a person, um, stay in a situation of exploitation. And what, what's really hard, I think is that often we have expectations about how somebody should behave in a situation mm-hmm. of exploitation. And when it comes to these kind of power dynamics, when it comes to the coercive factors, we actually don't, um, know how we would behave. Um, so, you know, there's so many different examples. So the thing is human trafficking is really diverse in how it, how it shows up, right? You. Um, some folks may think about human trafficking just in the way of sexual exploitation of somebody's being forced uh, to engage in the sex trade and they are being exploited in that way. Um, And and what we see here locally is that often those are American born um, individuals, um, Mm -hmm. often female, but then we have labor trafficking and that's a lot of individuals who may be foreign born. So coercive factors for somebody in that situation is their immigration status. It could be um, for those individuals, it might be that they have family back home um, and, you know, our local authorities can't protect their family back home. Um, it could be, um, you know, different different ways of holding on to their finances, um, if using somebody's unfamiliarity with or lack of familiarity with our system or our, our mm-hmm. culture here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then when we look at sexual exploitation, one of the biggest um, coercive factors is, you know, how our society tends to criminalize people in the sex trade. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, if we continue to criminalize somebody who um, is actually being exploited, they, they're they not going to trust that we will actually be able to help them. Uh, and traffickers use that all the time. So there's a lot of different factors at play. Um, we certainly see intersections with domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, and so those also come into play. And again, it comes back to these power dynamics that we really often don't see as community members.
0: Yeah. And when you're talking about, um, how we are expected to behave, are you alluding to this idea of why doesn't someone just leave or why would someone sign up for that in the first place? Um, how could someone allow themselves to be controlled?
1: Absolutely. So that's that's really the biggest um challenge, especially when we're talking about adult survivors of trafficking. I should also state when when you have a minor who's being sexually exploited, they're presumptively considered a, a victim of trafficking. Um, but when it comes to adults, you really have to show that force, fraud, or coercion. And so um it's probably useful to think about different examples. In talking about this, so when we're talking about labor trafficking, we see a number of individuals who are in um, the service industry who might be exploited. We had a case um, of individuals who were even in the health and beauty industry. So you might be going into a salon, you might be getting your nails done, and so those are adults. You know, you don't see somebody who's standing guard and forcing them to be there. Mm -hmm. And so you have this expectation: why don't they just walk out the door and and access help? Um, Agriculture a lot of individuals there um, who are migrant workers uh they they're at higher risk for exploitation and trafficking again thought as well you know why don't they access these are adults often they're male um you see in um you know construction industry there's in San Jose a really large case um of silvery towers which is commonly known as slavery towers because mm-hmm. there was a you know a contractor who um he had outbid other contractors for a subcontract and he, basically he was relying on um exploited labor he was locking these men up in a warehouse at night literally feeding them just just the minimum until their bodies gave out hmm. but here these men were on a construction site in plain you know broad daylight at a really um at a construction site where you don't necessarily expect They're, these are high high end high rise um, Building in the, so the middle of a major
0: US city. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Um, so these are the expectations where we kind of have to look beyond and often we have to get to know the situation a little bit more. Um, sometimes we see fruit vendors on the side of the road. There have been cases of trafficking. Sometimes it's not, but you know, you see somebody who's there by themselves, why don't they just leave the situation? You don't know what's happening on the back end.
0: Yeah. And you brought up the word slavery is and I, when I was kind of doing my sort of research on just the month is, how is it the same as, or different from, or is it modern day, not so modern day slavery when we're talking about human trafficking?
1: Yeah. So slavery is a form of human trafficking, Mm -hmm. right? When you have an individual who's actually bought and, and, and sold. Um, and so we, we moved, we've tried to move away from the term modern day slavery because it really, um, can look very different from chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and it also gives uh, the impression that that's how, you know, often that that type of slavery included force. Um, And so it also moves us away from the imagery that comes with that. Um, But it still certainly exists today. We see slavery happening in various parts of the world so it is very much a real situation but we we're trying to expand out what people think about
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that's why we we really don't just trafficking is more than slavery there's other forms of exploitation and other forms of individuals who really are not able to leave a situation
0: so if you bring us back to that person who I'm getting my nails done i think that might be a i mean that and these construction examples i think are so um part of the everyday sort of routine of a lot of people in our country. So I'm sitting there, I'm getting my nails done. What might the, if, if the person who's doing my nails is being trafficked, what might their experience be? How do they get there?
1: Um, I mean, so it's, it's really hard because one, one thing I, um, do want to stress is not everybody who is doing nails, obviously is a trafficking right. victim, and it it's often on a spectrum. So with labor trafficking, there's a component of wage theft and then again it rises to the level of trafficking if they cannot leave the situation. Um we know um if an individual um is um working in a place where you're getting really a really good what we think is a really good deal. If you're not paying much to get your nails done, somebody's paying for it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the first thing mm-hmm. to think about. Um if you're getting your nails done in a certain place. So one thing folks will ask is, should I just not even go to that, in, that place? Well, you don't know for sure. Um, what you could do is kind of take that time to kind of get to know, uh, what that individual is, um, a little bit about the individual doing your nails. So, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, do they have their family here? Um, who do they live with? Are they living with multiple p- people in, in one place? Um, you might start to learn if they're being uh brought to and from work if mm. if somebody's kind of controlling that. Um often, and I think people have gotten a lot better about this, is you actually give your tip to that individual versus, yes. you know, just um giving it to uh the establishment itself. Um that's not a surefire way, but those are those are small little things. Um you might actually see signs of you know malnutrition or physical abuse. That's not as common. Um and again, this kind of goes across the service industry in general, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. in the hospitality industry too, we've seen labor trafficking. Um, but how that person comes to that situation, again, can look a lot of different ways. But one thing we do know um, is just worldwide poverty, um, economic stressors are a huge risk factor mm-hmm. um, for vulnerability. Because when, you, when you're when you facing poverty, when you're faking, facing economic um, difficulties, you're more likely to take risks that maybe un- other individuals um, who are more financially secure would not. Um, and when you engage in those risks, then there's a higher vulnerability of exploitation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if your um, family's relying upon you, um, maybe, you know, you become a single mother um, in, in another country, you're not able to provide for your family. And a friend of a friend says, I can get you a job in the U S um, And, you know, we'll even help you get the certifications. So like we see this often in the massage industry Mm. um, that, you know, we'll help you get the certification. uh, You can just give us a deposit. And then when you get there and start earning money, then you can start paying us back. And so this is kind of the foundations of mm -hmm. debt bondage, too. So then they come over here. um, The person, you know, who their friend, this agent is helping arrange everything, helps arrange the. Um, travel documents helps arrange the visa that are required, helps arrange the transportation. So now you have somebody else who's controlling all these different mm-hmm. pieces. So when they arrive here, they're so reliant upon this individual, right? They believe they have to pay back a certain amount of money. Um, and then when they start actually working, things change a little bit. Well, now you actually have to do you actually have to do this, or you may have to provide sexual services, or maybe, Um, we also see labor trafficking happening in massage industry where you know you're working a number of hours or you're only earning tips, Mm. you know, things that are against our labor and employment laws. This individual won't know that. Again, they're relying on somebody else. Um, and they may be trying to pay back things and and it just never happens. Well, we actually have to charge you for rent. You're staying in our Uh, home, you food. Um, you know, you were sick on this day um you know it's, it's your time of the month so we're going to tax you for that so all these things start adding up um and that individual feels like they can't leave that they're financially tied cultural um it's it's really important that we're culturally responsive when mm-hmm. you think about things um one thing that we see often with survivors is that they um can be exploited by individuals in their own community because the cultural nuance, you know, a trafficker knows a cultural nuance is the best. Mm -hmm. Um, so in the situation I was describing often, you'll hear, um, well, I didn't want to bring shame to my family
0: Uh.
1: or what we've heard from uh, another survivor. He often talks about how in his situation of labor trafficking, you know, I know that, um, he didn't treat me well and I know who's exploiting me, but he still did me a favor. You know, he was Mm -hmm. still offering me something good, bringing me here. Mm. And so in our culture, it's, it's, you don't want to, um, dismiss the goodness that somebody offers, you know, so there are these cultural nuances that make it really important for us to be responsive. Um, and, and on the flip side, be really uh, mindful that we're not, um, pathologizing, you know, there's no one culture that does. Trafficking more than a other, mm. we've seen survivors from everywhere around the world. We just know that it's really important when we're trying to again get at some of what the where those power dynamics lay lie, and where those um, ties are that that becomes really important. And it's really important in the healing process too.
0: Yeah, I mean those power dynamics of I'm now I have isolated from my family in a. I mean just to imagine that that out of desperation and hope for being able to have a better life for my children. As you were describing that single mom, I take this risk that maybe I wouldn't otherwise take, but I see no other option. And the option seems pretty good because it's being taken care of for, it's being, it's all being set up for me. And so now I'm in a country. I don't know. I don't know the rules. I don't know the laws. I'm completely reliant on whoever I'm with to, to house me, to feed me, to transport me. Um, and if I didn't find my own way here, how in the world would I find my way back home? Um, and so almost this orchestrate, uh, it's just real, really well orchestrated that I didn't have to figure any of that out. Right. Um, so that I have this isolation and this dependence on top of those cultural nuances and the emotional tie to not wanting to be in debt to someone and wanting to ensure that I'm doing my part in this agreement that I made.
1: Yeah. And then we can take it one step further and then say, what does our society message, Yeah, you know, um, for a number of years, uh, it's getting slightly better, but, you know, um, he who shall not be named created this climate of if you go to law enforcement, um, you're going to be criminalized because how did you come to this country? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so that plays a huge role. So traffickers use that very easily. You'll be deported. So the other thing is you're relying on one person. Even if you feel like you want to get out of this situation, who do you go to?
0: Who do you go to? And if law enforcement's going to say, well, you're the one that broke the law and came here illegally. So- yeah. This person was just trying to help you. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. So, yeah. so much
1: of us our messaging in that yes. way. And how do we yes. do outreach so that we ensure we're creating um, a space of safety that somebody feels they can come forward for help. So that's one of the reasons why we, re- we really try to focus on outreach that says you can report to law enforcement. You can also find a confidential provider. Um, maybe it's an, actually an attorney that you want to speak to if you're really concerned about your immigration status or for some survivors, especially we see this often in sex trafficking where, um, they may have children by a trafficker or by, um, mm. a buyer, you know, somebody who's, um, you know, that, that they
0: awesome. purchasing sexual activities. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, so an individual who's purchasing sexual activities, uh, that they, have a child. And so custody issues come into play. So maybe the best thing for that individual is actually connecting them to a family law attorney where there's confidentiality. Mm -hmm. They won't be criminalized for um, engaging in the sex trade and they can focus on what that really big priority is for them, which is keeping their, their child safe. Yeah. Um, So that's why we really try to make sure that we're being very broad in our messaging about outreach um, and letting folks know there's a lot of ways that you can access support. Um, so you can leave a situation of
0: exploitation, yeah, so you mentioned um that this isn't new, and the work of the coalition is in its twentieth year, which I imagine sort of coincides when some of the laws were passed in um the u s. Um, how have things changed in the past twenty years? And um, you know, is it more or less prevalent now? I think i we probably I know the answer to that, but maybe <laughs> and then, um, and then just some of the current focus of, of advocacy efforts as they've evolved over the last 20 years.
1: Yeah, so I think prevalence is a hard thing. We yeah. don't have really sound prevalence studies on trafficking. What we do know is that we are really getting a lot better about um, ensuring that our systems are better identifying trafficking, that we're providing tools so that community members know how to better identify So we do see numbers going up. We see numbers um, in the U.S. We see statewide, California is one of the highest reporting states to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is 888 -888. 373 And even locally, we see kind of every year there's more individuals accessing services, accessing legal services. Does that mean there's more human trafficking? I would say, no, it means that we're getting better at identifying something that was likely already there. Yeah. Um. For, for years, we've been just arresting, particularly when we talk about the sex trade, but in other areas as well, we've been arresting anybody who was selling sex. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until now we have this framework to, to say, actually, one, children can't consent to selling sex. So why have we been, I mean, there were 13 year olds who were being arrested for prostitution. It makes mm-hmm. zero sense. Zero. And now, you know, looking beyond that, you have individuals who are exchanging sex for basic needs, for survival, for shelter, food, that's exploitive. Um, So we're getting better about ensuring that our systems are better identifying this and responding to it in a way that is um, more survivor informed, survivor centered, trauma informed. Um, So I think we're getting better about, you know, training, building capacity to identify and respond. Um, But, you know, we still see we still see survivors who are criminalized Um, even here locally uh, our you know, we have a really great partnership with our local prosecution and and law enforcement. But um, we have gaps with federal. And so Mm -hmm. we see survivors who, you know, currently we're advocating for a survivor who is being prosecuted um, in the federal system. And it's a pretty clear case of trafficking. And it's, it's such a miscarriage of justice. You know, this doesn't make our community safer. You have an individual who suffered complex trauma throughout her life. We failed her multiple times and here she's facing up to 10 years in, in federal prison, you know, for her situation of trafficking. So we have, so that's one of the current areas of of focus in terms of advocacy is really seeing how we can um, collectively come together to, to again, let our, um, Policymakers know. Uh, let our, our various electives know that this is not making our our society safer. We we need to continue to prioritize identifying um, survivors of trafficking and providing opportunities uh, for for them to find their own healing, opportunities for them to have their own life that's safe um, and healthy, um, and and just continue to push that narrative.
0: Yeah, you and know, not be things. criminalized for for being a victim.
1: Yeah. 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 And so that's the larger cultural shift. So uh-huh. I think you know, culture shift is always, you know, slow. We can pass a law, but until people really recognize, um, the, the value behind it, we still, we need the culture shifts shift to happen. Part of that is with language. So you'll still hear, you know, individuals who will use, um, and there was a whole campaign called, there's no such thing as a child prostitute.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was a really powerful campaign because, you know you know, when we think about it, of course, there's no such thing as, you know, a child can't consent to this. And yet we'd see it in media. People would talk about it. Oh, well, she was a child prostitute. Well, there's no such thing as that. Right. You know, She's
0: just so- a slut. She's just yeah, asking for it the way that she dresses the, why is she hanging out with those older guys? Right. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So that's a cultural shift that we're um, pushing for in terms of advocacy. The other thing that we really push for currently is making sure that we are um, increasing our capacity to identify, and so that's across agencies, including law enforcement, including child welfare, um, including public health, and then in- and then increasing our capacity to serve. So, you know, I mentioned some of the legal services, direct services are crucial. Um, housing is a huge piece, mm-hmm. a huge vulnerability and uh, point of stability for survivors. Um, and, and we know that for survivors, a lot of them access um, services for an average of of two years or more, you know, so there's a lot that needs to happen. Um, it's multidimensional when we're talking about providing services and providing support. So we're really, that's what our big advocacy is making sure we're looking at, um, support in a multidimensional way.
0: Yeah. How do I get the legal support that I need? How do I get the financial support, that the basic needs, the emotional mental health support, um... Perhaps substance use was part of the coercion and control. How do I, all those, all those things. Um, What do you think are the most challenging aspects right now in finding those supports for survivors?
1: I mean, funding is always going to be a challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly in the Bay Area, California, Santa Clara County, housing is one of, is the biggest gap. Um, and so that's something that we're trying to do a lot of advocacy around, because if we don't have stable housing, um, that's a huge vulnerability.
0: Yeah. Which you could probably say we know is, I mean, housing and homelessness is an issue throughout our country. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's probably
1: one of the biggest pieces. Um, I mean, the other challenges I kind of touched on is, um, making sure that we are not criminalizing, and so sometimes I, I you know, I mentioned the criminalization in the sex trade, but we see criminalization happening in labor trafficking, and it comes back down to when people start thinking about, you know, immigration status. How did they get here? And really, that shouldn't come into play, mm-hmm. right? Because we're talking about um, we have, a, a, I mean, we have we have laws regarding employment. Um, it actually hurts legitimate businesses when traffickers can exploit labor. So in Silvery Towers, that that subcontractor was able to get that job because he undercut all the other competition that was, you know, paying living wages um, or better wages to the workers. Um, The subcontractor was using exploited labor. So of course he could offer it for much cheaper. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so I think challenges is also getting folks um, and just, you know, in our everyday life. For us to take just a little bit more accountability um, for the demands that we create, you know, when we ask for like a ten dollar manicure, and we yeah. demand that, and think that that's feasible for um, the workers providing it and the business, um, we're we're kind of creating this culture that exploitation is is um, more likely to happen.
0: We're creating um, a market for it, right? Yeah. we're creating okay. a, If we're not, if we don't look at, and again, the nail salon example, but of what's minimum wage. Well, if you're not paying that for an hour of service, then you're clearly not getting this person's. You know, never mind the materials, the overhead. And so, when it's a fifty dollar, even you know, m- manicure, that's much more likely that you're covering the costs. And for this person to be being paid well, where at, for ten dollars, that just that, ha, ha, that's not. So, yeah, somebody somebody else is paying for it, as you said.
1: Yeah. And you can take it a step further with consumerism where, you know, we think about fast fashion. And mm-hmm. so we know a lot of these garments are being made abroad. And, and what are the workplace conditions there? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think there's some light that comes to that. So it's hard. That's a big challenge area is that, you know, people don't want to feel like they're contributing in part. And it's not about a blame game. It's more about just raising that level of awareness. Uh-huh. Where, um you know, can we take a more proactive stance on these things, you know, with the, con- with, um, you know, these big developers, you know, can you ask your subcontractors to kind of provide evidence of how they're um, paying their workers? Mm. Um, so, you know, there's a supply chain act that tries to get more at all these different steps um, on the labor side. Um, but, you know, that those are the kind of things that are still challenges. Cause again, it has to do with a culture shift and, um, you know just encouraging a more proactive response
0: yeah i was just thinking that um examples of advocacy efforts um throughout the years and and how prevalent i'm noticing and have noticed in recent years that whether i'm at the airport and i'm in the bathroom at the airport there's a sign behind the door telling me if you need help call this number like here's how you do this um and they're they're written in such a Gentle way of like we're here. What kind of what you were saying of creating that space? I've noticed them um, signs around human trafficking and help being available at rest stops when I've been driving. And I imagine you know now most of this is me seeing this in California, but I imagine that those are some of the efforts of coalitions such as the South Bay uh, Coalition that you lead of um, getting not just. The micro work of supporting each survivor as you come to be aware of them, but this awareness and accessibility, um, which is part really what I hope this conversation brings.
1: And, um, and I'm so happy you brought that up because Mm. the San Jose airport campaign is one that we developed with San Jose police department. Mm. Um, and so we really tried to especially focus on um, the Asian Pacific Islander community with that campaign because they under they're very low reporting. And then in Santa Clara County, it's such a large um, part of our, you know, large percentage of our community, uh-huh. of Asian Pacific Islander um, community. So that, that is one thing that we're trying to do is increase just, you know, seeing um, messages about that you can access help in a variety of ways. Trying to make it culturally responsive so that the messages aren't, um, you know, I mean, one thing is sometimes people will just have a billboard that says human trafficking happens, but a lot of people are like, well, what's human
0: trafficking? Right. What even is that? Yeah.
1: They're so far removed, like it's it's such a um, kind of, you know, new term that, that lacks familiarity or mm-hmm. you become numb to it. Mm-hmm. And so we really, we do focus groups with community members. What really resonates? Well, you know, we, we think a lot of, so with the Asian Pacific Islander community, what really resonated was that often individuals who may be exploited or who um, have survived sexual assault or domestic violence, that they feel shame. Yeah. And so that was really the core that you can get help for that. Um, and that could be law enforcement. It could be service providers. So, getting away from just saying human trafficking is happening, and really honing in on what are what are we really trying to um, tell folks?
0: Yeah, yeah. Those that are impacted, and those of us that aren't, but and are and are removed in that way, right? Um, so. In what ways do you we I always I end these podcasts with um what is resilience, but I think in this case, in what ways do you do you witness resilience in the healing journeys of survivors um that you sort of walk along these journeys with them? Incredible work, incredibly difficult work I can only imagine. Um, but how do you see resilience show up?
1: You know, I think in the simplest way is um a lot of the survivors that we've worked with have a capacity to love others. Mm -hmm. And when you see somebody who's really been exposed to some of the ugliest things in the world and in humanity, and they still have a capacity to love other others, that's so powerful. Um, It's pure resilience. Um, There's resilience in really Offering the level of trust to providers, attorneys, law enforcement to even work with them, to even believe that they might be able to offer some level of support. A lot of survivors have been failed so many times in their right.
0: Life. I trusted this other person who was gonna who promised me this better opportunity. How are you going to be any different? And that they mm-hmm. trust that they just keep. They open themselves up to trust again. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That that's peer resilience. Um, having hope for the future. Mm. You know, I think those are really simple things, but really reflect depth of resilience.
0: Yeah, and this isn't just surviving, right? Still choosing to to be here and to take on life. Mm -hmm. I've spoken in a few episodes around um, some of the discomfort I've grown through conversations around just this word resilience, because. Resilience can be you know it's not the pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get over it resilience that we're talking about. And those were such good examples and that in these in this case there these are human beings who shouldn't even have to tap into this resilience for these reasons because they've been exploited um, and um and they are and they've been victimized and taken advantage of and yet to highlight the fact that in these simplest ways of continuing to be able to love others, to being open to trusting others, to having hope, I do think there's just opportunity for appreciation and empathy and learning in that. Then those stories of resilience of um, how how are we as community members raising our awareness to um, to help support to help support that resilience, I guess like you said, just maybe I start talking to the person doing my nails. Again, not to assume that every single person in the service industry is being trafficked, but also just the humanness, seeing others as human, um, regardless of their country of origin or their their native language or their um, what they're doing for a living or who they are, but just that we see each other as human.
1: Yeah. And how are we creating space for others, right? Yeah. So even creating the space in that interaction for somebody to feel that they can engage, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and again, it comes back to that, like minimal amount of trust that you start to build with somebody, Mm -hmm. even sitting next to somebody on the train, Mm -hmm. you know, you have no connection to that individual. Um, but you, you do have an opportunity to to just plant the seed of of potential trust. One, um, this is kind of along that lines, but I just, I, I think it's a really great story. There's a survivor, um, who actually speaks a lot on our survivor advisory council, which community solutions hosts. And she speaks about how she had been um, trafficked for sexual exploitation throughout the U S and had been arrested multiple times and nobody identified it, identified the trafficking. But there was one officer who I believe is in Pennsylvania, maybe Um, And I may have the state wrong, but she said that he actually took the time. She said he was the first one who really said, you know, what was your childhood like? Um, You know, is this something that, you know, um, you want to be doing? He kind of asked more questions Mm -hmm. and he planted the seed of trust so that when she ended up here in the Bay Area, she took that chance. Mm -hmm. Um, She she said, you know, I'm going to ask for help at this Mm -hmm. point. Um, and so that, that was a, a turning point for her where, you know, her life shifted and, and she's, um, you know, doing well, she reunified with her family. So it's, you just never know when you have the opportunity to plant a seed, um, to create space for somebody to feel like they can, um, access, help access support. And
0: you, so just- it's reminding me of, um, sort of the shift in perspective that, being trauma-informed asks of us. And, you know, I used to say this is such a term for our field, but um, when when Oprah is writing a book about it, then, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, that it, it's bigger, it, it's become bigger than that, which it needs to be. And this idea that being trauma-informed, which means being aware that, and, or at least just sensitive to the fact that everyone has experienced trauma at some point in their lives and that you never know whether the person in front of you Um, or the person sitting next to you on the bus, what their experience has been. And so just being sensitive and open and having that lens is, is just a way of being in the world. It's a choice. And that um, Bruce Perry and others have said that the shift is instead of what's wrong with you, um, what happened to you and how is that showing up? And that's what you're describing right now is you know, what is wrong with this woman that she is just allowing herself to have sex, you know, be prostituted or that she's choosing to be a prostitute versus that one police officer who said, hey, tell me a little bit about what happened to you, and how's that showing up? Because certainly people who have experienced early childhood trauma and have not have learned from a very early age not to trust the world are at higher risk of not trusting the world anyway. But even if that didn't happen, and I'm in a situation where I came from the trauma of poverty or a war-torn country, and this job seemed like a really great opportunity, um, just having someone hear those things could start. Even if I don't tell them right then what's going on, what I'm hearing is can help me to unravel a bit of my story to perhaps open up to trust when the time comes that help is available. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, we don't know um, what impact our kindness can have,
0: right? Mm -hmm. Kindness. Yeah. Kindness. Anything else you want to know, people to know, Sharon, about um, current cases, current work, where people can learn more? Um, I mean, there's
1: so much to to talk about when Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about trafficking. So there's so many things I could talk about, but (laughs) uh, if you do want to learn more, you can take a look at our website, southbayandtrafficking.org. You can also check out Polaris Project. They run the National Human Trafficking Hotline. They have a number of resources. Um, You know, check out your local community, see what's happening there. Uh, There's room for really anybody in any profession and any way of life to impact this issue. You don't have to be, you know, an attorney who's doing immigration. You don't have to be law enforcement who's working with special victims. There's so many different things. Everybody has a circle of connection to, you know, you your nexus to um, your own communities that you could spread awareness. Um, so just, you know, see if you can think about what that next step looks like for you. Um, and I'm always happy to brainstorm.
0: hmm. Wonderful. Can you tell us again the national hotline for human trafficking?
1: Sure. National hotline is eight 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 three seven three seven eight eight
0: eight. Great. Thanks, Sharon. I really appreciate um, you being here to talk with me about this um, important and just widespread topic that um, is so important for people to be aware of. Like you said, it, it you can it can it takes everybody, and you don't. Have to be in a in a helping profession or, or field, in our field, to be able to make a difference on this issue. I appreciate your time, and I appreciate um, just the leader that you are in this space and all of the work that you do to create that safety and justice for survivors.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. Um, and you know, it's Human Trafficking Awareness Month, so there's a lot of stuff going on. So please tap in and and see how you might be able to impact the issue.
0: Thanks so much. What a powerful conversation. I hope that it raised awareness. If that um, is a space you're in where you had either never heard of or weren't aware of human trafficking, but, um, if you're someone who's been impacted, I hope that it provided an opportunity to know that help is available. And I'm really struck by Sharon's message that kindness is a way to support the prevention and support for human trafficking. Entering into interactions with people, that are in our inner circle or just in the circle of our daily lives at the nail salon, at the grocery store, our servers. Um, and just perhaps being more intentional about where, what businesses we're supporting, how we're interacting and, um, and the kindness that we're showing others. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Pathways to Resilience, an initiative of Community Solutions. For more information, please visit our website, www.communitysolutions.org.